The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Welcome to our podcast, The Tactical Take, where we discuss our thoughts on the markets, highlighting the opportunities and risks that we see in the current environment and how we're positioned in the tactical sleeves of the Natixis models to reflect this backdrop. My name is Jack Janisiewicz, Portfolio Manager and Lead Portfolio Strategist with Natixis Investment Manager Solutions, and I lead the Natixis Investment Manager Solutions Investment Committee. We started out the month of September with an attempt to rally. The S&P 500 staged a nice 5% bounce over a four-day period early in the month, only to be rebuked by a hot CPI print that sent the market right back to where it came from and then some, eventually testing the June lows and then subsequently breaking even lower. The benchmark U.S. 10-year Treasury yield continued its march upwards, marking nine straight weeks of higher yields and making a new cycle high of 3.95% on September 27th. On the equity side, markets around the world took it on the chin for the month of September, but the real story was in the currency market. The trade-weighted dollar pushed higher to levels not seen since 2002 as the euro fell 2.5% against the buck, the yen slipped almost 4% versus the greenback, and the British pound dropped 3.9% versus the dollar. King dollar is certainly having its way with the markets these days, and it's having a spillover effect in several areas of the market, which we'll get into in a second. We had spoken in previous episodes about the markets getting a little bit ahead of themselves, referencing the fact that financial conditions had actually been easing at a time when the Fed was trying to slow domestic demand. Recall that financial conditions, roughly speaking, are financial variables that impact the future state of the economy. In order for the Fed to get inflation under wraps, financial conditions would be required to tighten, and the Fed got just what it was looking for this month. Financial conditions hit their tightest levels since the COVID crisis began back in 2020, and we certainly saw that reflected in credit spreads this month. High-yield spreads were wider by 126 basis points, and investment-grade spreads gapped out some 86 basis points, referencing the respective Bloomberg U.S. Corporate High-Yield Index and Corporate Index. A tough month all around for asset classes. Bonds down, equities down, no fun. Lots to unpack these days, but it all comes down to two things, rates and the U.S. dollar. And as always, we'll offer up some thoughts on these. We've said ad nauseum that the market needs to find that equilibrium terminal rate, the peak in the Fed funds interest rate, before we can establish a floor for risk appetite. And this is a lot easier said than done. We need to see the economy slowing before the Fed can declare a mission accomplished. So a few things to think about in terms of getting us there, and more specifically, why it could potentially take longer for us to get to that place. First of all, Let's note a few challenges that might be underappreciated in this discovery process. Maybe the U.S. economy is less interest rate sensitive than we think. Think about it. Most mortgages these days are fixed rate loans. According to data from the Mortgage Bankers Association, only 10% of loans outstanding are adjustable rate mortgages. In the run-up to the global financial crisis, that number stood at close to 35%. Hiking rates doesn't impact current borrowers who have largely locked in their financing costs at significantly lower rates. So who does it hurt? Prospective buyers who are looking to borrow to finance that new home purchase. And if anything, this backdrop of higher rates and higher home value perpetuates the golden handcuffs issue that is dampening supply in the housing market. Homeowners with low mortgage rates are balking at the prospects of selling their homes to borrow at much higher rates for their next home purchase, which in turn is limiting the supply of houses for sale. Another example, think about the corporate side of the equation. Corporate stockpiled cash during COVID when the Fed backstopped the markets during the heart of the pandemic. We can see that in the institutional money market funds data. 
Assets shot up from roughly $2 trillion to over $3 trillion today, implying that corporate cash levels jumped by a third during this time. If corporates don't need to borrow because of these cash buffers, does it matter if rates are moving higher in the meantime? Over time, it will, but for now, corporates can burn through these cash buffers in lieu of financing at higher rates. It may be oversimplifying things here, but the point is that the U.S. economy may very well be less sensitive to interest rates than we think. And why do I highlight this? It may take a lot longer for things to cool off, just highlighting one potential risk along the path to finding that ultimate terminal rate. Okay, so if the U.S. economy is less rate sensitive, does that mean the Fed needs to continue upping the ante? Well, a few things to ponder here. The Fed has clearly stated in their summary of economic projections that growth needs to slow, unemployment needs to go up, and inflation will come down. The Phillips curve framework. Yes, rate hikes operate with a lag, but looking at real-time data like unemployment claims, we see barely a flinch in the labor market right now. So does this mean the Fed has to keep hiking even further than what is currently discounted, which in turn keeps pushing the terminal rate higher? We know what a potential headwind to the labor market near term. Given how hard it has been for employers to get workers back on the job, are employers going to be loath to cut workers and go through the rehiring and training cycle all over again in a year or so? And if employers aggressively try to retain workers, does that mean the labor market remains stickier than we expect? And if so, how does the Fed deal with this? What we know for sure is that the Fed needs to see bad economic data to know that their policies are working. The labor market is the key. The risk is that it may take longer for that weakness to manifest given the strength we're seeing in today's jobs market. And if this is the case, does the left tail for growth open back up again and widen? Is it safe to say that the labor market is so good it's bad? Let's look at what the Fed had to say this month. Their September meeting was largely a replay of Jackson Hole. No change in messaging. Powell delivered a hawkish 75 basis point hike as expected, but a bunch of dots drew all the fanfare. Why? These dots represent the thoughts of both voting and non-voting members of the Federal Reserve. Markets perceive them to be forecasts and expectations of where the economy is headed based on policy presumptions. The highlights, the median dot for overnight interest rates rose to 4.4% by year end and ticked up even higher to 4.6% by the end of 2023, while 2024 saw interest rate cuts that brought rates down to 3.9%. Higher for longer, no doubt about that. A few clues as to what the Fed perceives as the terminal rate. Other forecasts? Three consecutive years of below-trend real GDP growth running at two-tenths of 1% in 2022, 1.2% in 2023, and 1.7% for 2024, and the unemployment rate ticking up from the current level of 3.7% to 3.8% by year-end, and all the way up to 44 for 2023 and 2024. These figures suggest a growth recession as opposed to an outright recession, but this remains at odds with the unemployment rate. According to the SOM rule, which shows that when the three-month moving average of the national unemployment rate rises by a half percentage point or more relative to its low during the previous 12 months, you should expect a recession. So looking at the Fed's projections and implying the SOM rule to these forecasts, we should expect a recession. But the point I'm trying to make, the new base case is for pain, a growth recession at the very least. And to quote Chair Powell, there's a very high likelihood that we'll have a period of below-trend growth and that could give rise to higher unemployment. That's what we need to have. Well, there you have it. 
For now, the Fed's new reaction function is almost the Evans rule in reverse, named after Chicago Fed President Charles Evans, who, after the great financial crisis, cited the commitment of the Fed to retain rates lower for longer as the unemployment rate remained above 6.5% or inflation remained below 2.5%. The current framework offered up by Chair Powell might as well be the opposite. The point here, the Fed is committing to hold rates at that terminal rate until inflation is convincingly moving back towards the target and unemployment rate rises into the mid-force. The focus is shifting from tightening financial conditions to keeping them tight. This means shifting from rate shocks to level and duration, higher for longer. And remember, maintaining a restrictive policy setting into a decelerating economy and declining inflationary backdrop is de facto tightening as growth slows and real rates rise. Market reaction to all of this? It's all taking place in the Treasury market and the yield curve. The U.S. Treasury market is where it's at these days, and that may not be a good thing. This is supposed to be the sleepy part of the market where you go to watch paint dry, but plenty of high drama these days, so let's step through a few of the catalysts for volatility that we saw this month. While the British pound's spectacular 5% decline during the third week of the month stole center stage from the relentless weakening of the euro and even the Chinese renminbi in recent weeks, It's important to note this dynamic of higher yields, currency lower from around the globe. These dynamics are being echoed throughout developed economies that rely on commodity imports, which brings us back to the dollar's vicious cycle. As the linchpin in global trade via invoicing and trade channels, a strong dollar weighs on global trade and manufacturing. When global manufacturing slows, commodity demand falls and prices ease. Lower commodity prices weigh on the economies and currencies of exporters, which then further weighs on global growth. Investors tend to seek out safe haven currencies driving a risk-off bid into the U.S. dollar, and around and around we go. We often see yields fall as slowing growth pushes central banks to ease, with exporters enjoying the kicker from currency weakness generated by lower interest rate differentials. The net effect? The global term premium falls as a result of the effects of a strong dollar, and as the global term premium falls, long-end U.S. rates get bid stronger. But that's not exactly what we're seeing today. The Fed is a single-mandate central bank now, focusing on reining in inflation. The employment side of that mandate has taken a backseat. Global growth is slowing, and the U.S. dollar is at multi-decade highs. Recession fears continue to build, and yet 30-year yields continue to push higher. The exact opposite outcome to what we just outlined earlier. So what's different? It starts with the shocks we face this year. The global energy shock is being felt most acutely in Europe as it's created a terms of trade shock for developed economy energy importers. Currencies and rates have been forced to reprice for a new environment where current account surpluses have flipped the deficits almost overnight as the cost of energy imports have surged. The UK is not alone in this regard. We can clearly see it with the reaction in the euro, the Swedish krona, the Norwegian krone, etc at the same time as their sovereign yields have pushed higher. To put this simply, energy prices push higher, trade balances narrow, FX weakens, yields rise as inflation is imported via higher energy costs and FX weakness. The bottom line, not a pretty picture for developed market economies, but not a huge problem for relatively insulated U.S. economy. But here's where things have begun to change. As global yields have pushed higher, particularly during the British gilt sell-off, those rising yields have begun to leak into U.S. rates. Rising global yields are pushing U.S. long rates higher at the same time the dollar is moving higher, creating a double whammy of sorts that ultimately reflects in a tightening in financial conditions. And as nominal yields push higher and financial conditions tighten further, real yields continue to push higher. 
Recall that real yields are simply nominal yields adjusted for inflation and are considered a gauge of borrowing costs for companies and households, as well as a scale to judge the relative value of an, any number of investments. Real yields are now positive across the entire curve in the United States, exactly what Powell and company want to see. The issue, however, is the rapid pace of that move higher in real yields, over 200 basis points in the five-year segment of the curve and 150 basis points in the 10-year maturity in a span of just seven weeks is a lot to digest across markets. And it shouldn't be any wonder that stocks are retesting the June lows as a result. The bottom line here, the spillover cycle sees the dollar in a self-sustaining doom loop and continues to push higher. The U.S. imports disinflation via the strong U.S. dollar. Meanwhile, the strong dollar and continued energy crisis pressures European inflation higher. That higher inflation pushes rates up in anticipation of further tightening, while the terms of trade shock from the energy crisis pushes currencies lower. European economies export higher rates and weaker effects to the U.S. as relative value overrides the recession risks and the U.S. Treasury curve shifts higher. Round and round we go. As for the yield curve shape itself here in the U.S., short rates have clearly repriced higher for the Fed's new dot plot and higher for longer stance. It may seem like higher for longer as the front end should translate to higher long end rates, but that's not necessarily the case. Recession is the base case in Europe with consensus odds for a U.S. recession rising as global growth slows. Deflationary forces, including the strong dollar, are still likely to drive cyclical inflation lower. The Fed is committed not just to getting inflation lower, but to pushing unemployment higher and growth below trend. This seems like a backdrop that would support a bid at the long end, and yet we've seen the exact opposite. The U.S. rates don't move in a vacuum. Global long rates have repriced sharply and are spilling over into the U.S. curve, and that spillover cycle seems to be the key here. The recessionary risk-off bid to the long end is being overridden by relative value dynamics as the terms of trade shock and inflation issues in Europe push the euro area yields higher. And to complicate matters even more, yield curve control by the Bank of Japan remains a looming risk. The Bank of Japan remains the lone developed market economy not moving dramatically into a tightening regime. As the BOJ has continued to step up its defense of the 10-year yield target of 25 basis points, the Japanese yen has been the relief valve, falling to levels against the dollar not seen since 1990s. The recent FX intervention, albeit modest, has shown that perhaps the slide in the FX has gone far enough. But FX intervention won't be enough to rein the currency back in as long as the Bank of Japan maintains the 10-year yield target at 25 basis points. And with inflation touching 3% in August, the elephant in the room is clearly whether that target will finally move up. Should that happen, might we see another push higher in global term premium that gets exported to the United States? And one last observation, while we've seen FX intervention from the BOJ, we are also seeing it from the People's Bank of China. The issue here, China tends to dump reserves in order to buy its local FX or renminbi. So what? In order to buy renminbi, the PBOC needs to sell U.S. dollars against it. Where do they get the dollars from to sell? They liquidate their holdings in U.S. treasuries to raise cash. So this also could be another factor playing in the treasury market. A lot of unanswered questions remain, but the key to all of this remains the terminal rate. Figure out that level and much of this volatility can begin to calm down, and that helps to restore risk appetite. So what do we do this month? We added to investment-grade credit at the expense of U.S. Treasuries and swapped some emerging market equities for U.S. small caps. With the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond approaching close to 4% and interest rate futures pricing in a terminal rate close to 4.75%, we felt like the markets were getting pretty close to pricing the Fed's tightening cycle. 
And while the U.S. Treasury curve remains flat as a pancake, the U.S. investment grade curve is some term premium. We still hold to our base case for a mild recession and feel that high-grade U.S. corporate balance sheets are well-positioned to withstand a slowdown. And as such, investment grade spreads are offering value at these levels. Adding some marginal risk to the portfolio at these elevated levels on the credit side, but still focusing on quality. On the equity side, the Fed's push to further tighten financial conditions has us concerned for the prospects surrounding emerging markets. But while this backdrop has been in play for some time, we've grown a bit disappointed with several headwinds coming from China. With the real estate sector weighing on sentiment and what has proven to be an underwhelming response to a decelerating economy, we see better opportunities in the U.S. small cap space with valuations having corrected meaningfully and thus providing a downside cushion, as well as the fact that small caps tend to outperform the broad markets when unemployment begins to tick higher, we felt like the risk-reward trade-off was in favor of U.S. smalls and swapped accordingly. Wow, a lot going on these days in the markets. To wrap up our podcast, The Tactical Take, this is Jack Janisiewicz. Hope you enjoyed the commentary, and thanks for listening. Important information. For listeners outside the United States, Natixis Investment Managers Distribution and Service Groups include Natixis Investment Managers SA, Luxembourg, Natixis Investment Managers International, France, and their affiliated distribution and service entities. These entities conduct any regulated activities only in and from the jurisdictions in which they are licensed or authorized. Their services and the products they manage are not available to all investors in all jurisdictions. For additional information and important podcasts disclosures for listeners outside the U.S., please consult imnatixis.com slash intl slash podcasts and other media. Further, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and not necessarily those of Natixis Investment Managers. These views were provided as of the date of recording and will not be revised. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute investment advice or an offer to buy or sell a financial product from any Natixis Investment Managers entity. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Investment risk exists with equity, fixed income, and alternative investments. There is no assurance that any investment will meet its performance objectives or that losses will be avoided. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Performance data discussed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results. Indexes are not investments, do not incur fees and expenses and are not professionally managed. It is not possible to invest directly in an index. This document may contain references to copyrights, indexes and trademarks that may not be registered in all jurisdictions. Third-party registrations are the property of their respective owners and are not affiliated with Natixis Investment Managers or any of its related or affiliated companies. Collectively Natixis, such third-party owners do not sponsor, endorse or participate in the provision of any Natixis services, funds or other financial products. Provided by Natixis Distribution, LLC, 888 Boylston Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02199. Natixis Investment Managers includes all of the investment management and distribution entities affiliated with Natixis Distribution, LLC and Natixis Investment Managers SA. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited-purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Natixis Advisors, LLC provides advisory services through its division Natixis Investment Manager Solutions. Advisory services are generally provided with the assistance of model portfolio providers, some of which are affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. LLC Natixis Advisors, LLC does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax or legal professional prior to making any investment decision. Member SIPC, Pod 37 October 2022, Ad Tracks. 
4980038, 1, 1, expiration date, May 31st, 2023.